coming to you live, but not really. It is all pomp and no circumstance with Ryder Richards on LetUsThinkAboutIt.com, the amateur hour you should never tune into. Welcome back. This is Ryder Richards. Okay, today we're going to take a look at how two irresolvable points, these are antagonisms, can despite their extreme differences really be one. That's right, two is one. This is a math class. <laughs> I know it sounds post-truth, but there is a long philosophical and religious history of overcoming the two with one. And this is kind of in the goal for a universal truth, or maybe a grand theory of design, right? It's also the idea of maybe a single god that can somehow underlie everything and explain all things. And of course, along the way, we're going to keep bumping into opposing points. And we often try to go meta or go over these points, right? To keep them under our umbrella, our sort of universal absolute concept. But what we're walking through today is a type of Hegelian dialectics. Of course, this is stripped down a bit because I'm really not a Hegel scholar. I'm pretty new to him. And to help, I'm going to be talking about the shape and movement of these oppositions because I'm an artist and shapes and geometry work a lot better for me. Now, I'm going to walk through how opposites diverge only to converge again to form a circle. I'm also going to talk about how these opposite points can rotate around a circle like a clock, right? Keeping their distance equal. And how the circle this kind of shape of the argument or the antagonisms here can be somehow twisted to actually flip the points of view of the antagonists. Of course, this is all about attempting to reach the absolute. This is all about somehow transcending the impossible horizon and becoming fully what you are. So around part three, we're gonna start to consider what if that can never really happen? <laughs> I mean, what if you transcend and yet somehow because of the way we are, part of us does not transcend with us, right? It's like having a foot in both worlds and, you know, hearing the seam of your pants rip. <laughs> so yeah, Slavoj Žižek, he brings up this kind of contradiction that we are all inherently flawed and fundamentally contradictory, which is, oddly enough, the motivation that moves us. So this might actually be a good thing. And then, of course, because... I'm still trying to be creative, I'm going to throw in another spatial option just for the sake of argument. Perhaps we don't have to just overcome or fail. Maybe, kind of like in the last episode, we can make a satisfying philosophy around donuts. Okay, and you might ask about all of this, well, why do we care? Well, let's save some of that for the end, but what is important here in the intro is to realize that there are always contradictions that form antagonisms. But instead of traditional overcoming this ascendancy, we can recognize that our supposed flaw is precisely what gives us our personality and sets us into motion. And along the way, of course, I'm going to keep on referencing this two becoming one, yet somehow still remaining two. And this is a type of non-duality that carefully refuses, you know, not to collapse everything into some sort of absolute totality. Because, as we all know, totalitarianism is very scary. Part 1. The Path for the Two to Become One In the last season of Peaky Blinders, the Netflix show, Tommy Shelby is a socialist forced into plotting with the fascists. In one scene, he says that people think of opposing sides as two endpoints, as if they're somehow on separate tracks. But 
Tommy says he finds it to be more of a circle, where the two sides start diverging. And as they escalate and become more and more extreme, separating distance, they actually begin to arch back toward each other. They end up sweeping around the central axis. As they extend further, they end up gravitating back to a shared commonality. Their goal is one of revolution and change, and this unites them, making them uneasy allies. And it's almost as if, after fighting for so long, the only people you understand or respect are the other extremists. One way to think about this is that you bind yourself to your opposition as tightly as to your cause. Now, in the process of rejecting, rejecting this other cause, the other, you tie yourself to that thing. Anthony DeMello says the priests who end up coming to talk to him can only talk about what they have given up, which is sex. And the prostitutes that talk to him only want to speak of God. So whatever you forego is what you bind yourself to. Your choices of exclusion, that is the distance you feel from the thing, actually relate you even more closely to it. To date, if we look at the most extreme fringes on either side of the political spectrum, let's take for example the ultra-woke and the anti-woke, they appear to want opposite outcomes. Yet, on closer inspection, perhaps they are actually fighting over the same thing. According to David French, both sides want an end to liberalism and pluralism. Now, consider that for a second. Both sides want an end to liberalism and pluralism, which means that they need dominance over the center. Not only do they share a battlefield here, but the battle is to dictate behavioral norms to others. Now, upon closer inspection, we can see that both extremes stem from an ideology of individuals' rights. I want this, or this is my right. To which the other side says, no, no, that infringes on my rights. So, here's the thing. I'm not trying to belittle this. It's very real. It's not just a matter of contrariness on either side. And David French again says, both sides have legitimate grievances against the other, which, of course, they're unwilling to forego or forgive. Now, in this way, in this very basic dialectic I've tried to map out here, the antagonism and tactics, well... We end up considering the meta-motivation. The two begin to appear as one bound together in a deadlock dance. Hurt and enraged opposites react to the moves and cues of the other. This is a mimicry to maintain a stalemate, leading not to victory here, but to a perpetual divisive communion. Part 2. The Circle the Mobius script. So what we've looked at so far is a stalemate, where an impasse determines opposition or it sets up and compounds antagonisms. Now let's return to thinking about this dynamic in terms of geometry or shapes. To start, let's look at the circle of the Ouroboros. That is a snake eating its tail, right? Now the snake's movement goes in one direction with the swallowing creating kind of an eternal movement, an eternal cycle, a will of time, blah, blah, blah. But we have talked here of oppositional sides. So the one point of interaction here where the mouth gulps the tail, that's only one point. And so we need another snake, right? Uh, we need the danger doubled to represent two antagonists. So Tommy Shelby, once again from Peaky Blinders, suggests that opposing points move in opposite directions, starting in the south and branching apart from each other only for their goals to align at the North Pole despite their mutual disgust. But 
that's not our deadlocked dance we just talked about. That's a pretty easy two becomes one. Now, how about if our savvy antagonists are both reacting to each other, rotating clockwise, always maintaining distance? Now, in this movement, a type of deadlock maintains their separation and thus their identities remain unique. But they can never bridge their differences because there's no intersection. However, what if each argument can be flipped so it becomes its mirror opposite? Not jumping across a circle, but somehow the point itself inverts to its opposite. Can we use the circle, this is the topology of the argument, the battlefield if you will, to alter the antagonists themselves? What if we take our two-dimensional, repetitive, boring, deadlock dance of the circular path, and by twisting the path, we flip each side into its opposite? The Mobius strip actually does this. Now, this is kind of a mathematical object. It's a one-sided surface that twists in space. It's also known as a non-orientable topology. Now, if you've ever looked at M.C. Escher's drawings, his art, you've likely seen one of these. Uh, the most popular image is a bunch of ants on what looks like a 3D infinity sign. Uh, and some of these are walking clockwise, yet they never seem to encounter the ants walking counterclockwise, even though it seems like they should. So it's a sort of bizarre illusion. Now, what's unique here is that in a purely flat, two-dimensional realm, an object traveling on the outside of a Mobius strip, he will move through this mathematical twist and oddly enough appear on the inside. It will also flip the point. The antagonism will be flipped to mirror itself. So if it's right-handed, all of a sudden it'll be left-handed. Right becomes left. Now, even in a 3D realm, the points would at least move from interior to exterior, creating a kind of dynamism instead of the boring, repetitive, deadlocked stagnation we were talking about at first. Now, to bring all this back into context, <laughs> which is a long way around, right? Uh, remember that Herbert Marcuse's The One-Dimensional Man that we talked about in Step 63, I think it is? Well, this person is caught up in a totalizing system that reduces them, and any real rebellion or complexity is co-opted back into the system until the person has no substance left. They're essentially flattened. Even their rebellions are reduced to slogans that are turned, of course, into cheap t-shirts or bumper stickers. So, in consideration of this, the points of antagonism in our society are likely reduced as well, perhaps making them easier to flip. In the last episode, Step 64, Pacone would say, they're actually artificial negativity. They're not real anyway, and they're only stage simulations. Of course, we also talked about Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance, which points out the contradiction in forcing people to be tolerant. So these are flipped, right? So when the good is bad and the rebellion strengthens the hegemony, ooh, well, what are we gonna do? Well, yeah, let's talk about these opposites first, these individual points, these antagonistic extremes that fundamentally never can agree. So individually, they are trying desperately to manifest their goals, to fully realize themselves, just as you and I are, or at least I assume that's what we're doing. Now, on their path, their journey, they sweep outward to the furthest most point, and this is because they're attempting to differentiate themselves, to separate themselves, to break free. But unfortunately, they're incapable of fully becoming. Now, don't worry. This isn't as sad as it seems, because <laughs> nothing can ever fully be itself. Now, when you consider it, as many philosophers have, this sort of transcendental self of fully becoming, yeah, there's a lot of problems in it before we ever even get into the foibles of subjectivity. 
First, let's consider this. Everything is made up of subsets, and these are subparts with kind of their own wills and prerogatives. So no definition could ever be complete because it keeps changing, right? That is, no definition of fullness could take into account the sum of the parts to explain the complete self. So you always have to put an asterisk next to that definition. Now, Lacan would even say that to be whole, you must include the exception to the rule. Otherwise, it's not a complete definition, right? It's non-total or non-encompassing unless you have the opposite included in it. But there is another reason no one can ever fully become. Zizek says everything has within it a fundamental failure. And this failure denies the harmonious nature of its parts. It's not only the broader system that's thwarting you, while of course comprising you, but more importantly, your constitutive parts have been created in a fundamental contradictory deadlock. So, Let's take a non-human example to start with, uh, the example of the state or the nation state. It functions and still exists despite its deadlock. In fact, it seems to only exist because of the inherent contradictions that's always combating it within itself. Its becoming is precisely its embrace of its contradictions. Its incompleteness is what makes it. Its totality is always caveated, contingent, and deferred, and yet, always an imminent process of becoming without ever reaching it. And this is simply because it cannot fully be itself. That's not a reason to scrap it, right? Because in truth, we would never want it to fully become itself, right? That would be a total state of domination, which is total stagnation. Once again, totalitarianism. So let's get back to it. We have a Mobius strip with two points racing around, reaching for extremes of difference, yet inevitably pulled backwards into the center, flipping over, changing polarity, collapsing into each other. They fail to achieve their full becoming because of an inherent contradictory failure. So what we can say here is that the path they are on is made to thwart them. And that is the path of the Mobius strip where the oppositions cross without ever coming into contact. Now, Zizek refers to this as a crack, a gap, or a void. And it's insurmountable, unbridgeable, it's an opposition within us, and it is also existent within the entire universe. And this is something that does not let us cross the horizon into transcendence. But he also brings up this constitutive gap motivates our motion. That's right, our failure to become, our inherent flaw, is what drives us. Part 3 going down to get through. Okay, I had a whole section here about concrete universalism to really show you how the one can be both transcendent and still real, one and two and one again. <laughs> but this is already getting too long, so we're gonna shelf that concept for a future episode. Just remind me if I don't get back to it. Now, where were we? In a Hegelian sense, with these antagonisms and maybe even Kant for his antinomies, we're mapping the oppositions and the shape of their movement. Now, this is brutally simplified, but here we go. For Kant, the idea was to point out how we could never perceive the really real world, the thing in itself, as it really was. That's what these antinomies were about. But the goal for Hegel is to recognize these seemingly insurmountable polarities, and in so doing, sublate them to ascend up a spiral staircase of overcoming. 
So the two-sided oppositional struggle is somehow considered one thing, one struggle, right? One problem or category as you overcome it. But Zizek says not to think of this challenge as a smooth becoming, not as dialectics you can overcome, but rather we should think of them as blocks and stoppages. These things that keep you from fully becoming. Because really, it's a never-ending battle. Finding the two and sublating them to one, and in doing this repeatedly over years and years, yeah, you may start to feel some despair. This is kind of a Sisyphean exhaustion. Now, last episode, I brought up that if Hegel used donuts as a metaphor, more people would consume his philosophy. And it was, of course, a joke. Uh, but maybe it's my turn to take us back to donuts here. This time, I specifically want to look at the whole itself, right? Now, this is the void through which we must pass. Because, you know, I'm kind of getting sick of this circular orbiting. Right round, baby, right round. I mean, let's just go through. What if, instead of overcoming, which is pictured always as this kind of upward motion of tackling bigger and bigger antinomies, this kind of existential Donkey Kong where the levels get harder and harder as you go up, right? What if we consider becoming as a type of mining? What if we go down, more like Dig Dug with a pinch of Fight Club? Now, this would definitely be more kind of Frederick Nietzschean downgoing. But sure, I mean, we can also throw in Hegel's notion of the ground as well. It's just that we're actually working to go beyond the ground. In our downgoing, we encounter the ground where each blockage stops us, requiring us to chip away at it, to dig. Now, once we have started digging, once the two sides are far enough apart, we have created a new thing, a new unity. This is a hole or a void. That is, it's an absence that's actually ringed by a circle. Perhaps we have allowed this problem to expand over time. I mean, because given what we know of antinomies, right? They're fighting to stay apart, to differentiate themselves from each other. They want to maintain their identity. And they're spending vast amounts of energy in this attempt to migrate away from each other. As they widen outward, the sides of our hole are going to expand, opening up. Now, we know that eventually gravity or entropy will inevitably lead to the circle collapsing because, of course, nature abhors a vacuum or a void. But for the moment, the energies of the extremes have opened a way through. And as we go down, we move from shallow to deep, further isolating ourselves in the darkness of the unknown. This would take a lot of bravery, not some sort of shallow groupthink conformity of choosing sides. This is expansion into the beyond that breaks the foundational blockages. It goes through the metaphysical ground like a prison break from philosophy. Part four, the knot, two is not one. So this is our little wrap up here, a way to process all this information. So Jose Ortega y Gassat and Heidegger they both sort of say that this is just life. It is not actually a binary, and it never was. And your battle of contradictions is to battle the artificial binary, the game here. Now, to do this is to live, and it's also a heroic undertaking. It's going to be painful and challenging. Now, we're constantly enticed back into the black and white game. But remember, this is a process that cannot be separated from the context and circumstances that you are in. Jose Ortega y Gassat says, I am I and my circumstance, and if I do not save it, I do not save myself. Alan Watts says, 
life and reality are not things you can have for yourself unless you accord them to all others. Hmm. Considering this, it's not the individual's upward overcoming we should be focused on, because that's just another binary. We have a failure within us. We are built with contradictions inherent to us. And that is the exception inside of us that, in a kind of bracketed sense, an odd way, it makes us dynamically whole and offers us the path. Your brokenness is your wholeness. Slavoj Žižek says that failure is the path through. The uniquely human trait is really not our addition of language or intelligence, but it's our ability to embody the very failure of the universe. We are inscribed with the impossibility of transcendence and in embracing the failure as satisfaction, we actually move outside or beyond the typical subject-object relation here. Zizek brings up the example of difference between humans and apes, where an ape presented with an object beyond reach will basically give up and move on to something else more accessible, say a less attractive sexual partner, while the human will remain persistent and transfixed on the impossible object. <laughs> he says this is why a person is hysterical. They pose ultimate happiness, delight, and ecstasy, jouissance, as an absolute, a true goal. They make ultimate delight into unsatisfied desire. The very unsatisfaction of the goal is their joy. He says, quote, Such an object is capable of relating to a term that is outside the limits of the game. That is that they support themselves through the relationship to that which is out of play. <laughs> so by installing a point of impossibility as ultimate joy, you're hysterical. You're utterly human. And our flaw is to find delight in the impossible, which is also our means to move beyond the binary oppositions that plague us. All right, thank you for your time and indulgence. I know this one ran a little bit long, but if you can't tell, it could have gone much longer. <laughs> so I'll have to save the rest of that for a couple episodes later. Now, as a brief wrap up, the point is to consider our antagonisms. This is the shape of the path that we are on. We need to consider both the impossibility of constantly overcoming things and to maybe even embrace our idiot failures as the very things that allow us to transcend beyond ourselves. Once again, the contradictions here are thick and yet they may be the imperative that drives us. Okay, so you know the drill on the podcast, right? If you can, please rate and review the show and check out the website, letusthinkaboutit.com, for sources and written versions of the podcast. Now, while I definitely enjoy researching these things and coming up with the ideas, if you could lend me some support, yeah, well, I mean, money's always appreciated with either a one-time or a monthly contribution through the website. But you can also do something else. Just reviewing the show, sharing the podcast with a friend, all that really, really helps. Once again, thank you for your time. This is Ryder Richards, and until next time, please stay safe.